Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Liberalism, as a living uh, tradition, has done more to have a corrective conscience instilled in all of its institutions than any other system of human management, much less human government, that that we know of. Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I feature a lot of critiques of liberalism on this show. Uh, you've heard critiques of liberalism from conservatives. You've heard them from sort of illiberal Catholics uh, like the the Patrick Deneen folks. Um, you've heard them from folks on the left. I don't, in an explicit way, tend to have that many defenses of liberalism. But for for an ideology that is getting quite as embattled as liberalism, it's probably worth doing. I was thinking about this because I got sent Adam Gopnik's book, uh, A Thousand Small Sanities, which is a really thoroughgoing defense of liberalism as both a, an intellectual tradition and in its American liberal as a, as in the kind of main left end of the political spectrum instantiation. And it's a book – I have to say it's a book I struggled with. Uh, I was reading it and I hadn't intended when I got it to have him on the podcast. And I was reading it and first was a part of me that really thrilled to it. It was describing something that held very true for me and that I thought does not get described, a kind of fuzzy liberalism, a temperamental liberalism, because so much in American politics collapses down into the binary of yes or no on like this bill or that bill, yes or no on the left approach or the right approach. And because political institutions constrain so much, you have people of very different philosophical persuasions who end up on the same policies. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders, uh, for all that he's a, a democratic socialist, has just been a member of the Democratic caucus in the way he operates in the Senate for a very long time. His voting record is not very different than, say, Cory Booker's voting record. But there's definitely a difference between him and Cory Booker. And Gopnik, I think, gets it what this difference is. He, he really tries to root liberalism down as a temperament in a way that – Again, it's fuzzy, but but I think he is capturing something real, something that is clarifying about why some of the people who are fighting uh, are, are currently fighting. And at the same time, the fuzziness of that, the, the, the way he constructs a liberalism that doesn't really help you make decisions between this policy and that policy, between this politician and that politician, a liberalism with a commitment to an approach as opposed to a program – 
there was something that uh, rubbed me the wrong way about it too. Um, that can't be what liberal. I mean, liberalism it can't be everything, right? It can't just be the things we like, the people we like. And so I wanted to have him on the show uh, to do something a little bit weird, which is both try to articulate both what liberalism is and 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 his case for it, which I think is very eloquent and I think gets a lot of very big things right. But also challenge it. Try to figure out what its boundaries are. Try to make it less fuzzy. Um, you'll hear in this podcast that I end up, for instance, taking uh, both the the critique of Bernie Sanders and, and and trying to take on the voice of Bernie Sanders a bunch of times, which maybe is a, a very liberal thing to do in the temperamental way. Um, but there's a lot in here, um, and I think there could have been a lot more. This is one of those uh, topics that that could go for a couple of podcasts and and perhaps should. But I, I do think that given how strong liberalism is as an ideology, I mean, the fact of the matter is that I think almost everybody running for president as a Democrat counts as the kind of liberal Gopnik is talking about. It's remarkable how rarely the set of characteristics, both ideological and temperamental, that seem to make up modern liberalism actually get articulated and uh, advocated for in the discussion. Um, there's like this attraction to the things that are newer uh, on the polls, more on the left, more on the populist right, and, and like there's an energy and electricity to them such that it is easy to ignore. Like what is the still, I think, quite dominant dimension of the Democratic Party, the one that seems to be leading in the primary, and understanding both its favors and its flaws, I think, is important. Uh, so this is a fun conversation. Uh, his book, again, is A Thousand Small Sanities, which is a lovely name for a book. He's a writer at The New Yorker, a, a really beautiful prose stylist. He does a cool thing in this book. The, the book operates almost as a model of itself. Um, the, the liberal temperament is very embodied in the book, particularly in the way he makes counterarguments against himself and 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 has these very affectionate profiles of contrary thinkers. It's it's a cool it's a cool quick read, uh, and I think you'll enjoy this show. My email, as always, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Adam Gopnik. Well, I was just talking to my sister about your wonderful podcast with her. I was going to say, you're the first. I did not know this. You're the first sibling pair ever on the podcast. Is that right? Yes. Really? I, I just assumed there were multiple Gopniks. It turns out you're no, all one family. There are no Gopniks. In fact, <laughs> if you Google us, you will find that there are two things. There are Soviet hooligans, not Soviet, any longer Russian hooligans. Because Gopnik is it's one of the curses of this name, is a kind of Russian hooligan. It's short for like Gop is the shorthand for public housing. So it's like, uh, you know, in France, it's called Echelemet, which means like it's public housing, low, huh. low class hooligan type. And there's those Gopniks. And then there's us, one family. And that's it. It's an impressive family. Though. And that's it. And so um, when. Um, uh, the Cohen brothers made a serious man. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Right. They have a character called Larry Gopnik because they had thought, seeing my name in passing, they thought, oh, it was a name like Remnick or Klein or something. It just was a standard uh, American Jewish name. And then when they they discovered, when the lawyers did the due diligence, that there were no others. In fact, no kidding. Yeah. And so they, well, we said, that's sure. an amazing claim to fame for you. Like being Larry Gopnik's yeah. Na namesake, yeah, absolutely, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah absolutely. If you, yes, my, it's the only thing that my kids have ever been impressed by. So uh, I remember, I think it was Zeke Emanuel who wrote a book about why are all the Emanuel brothers smart and successful. Right. Uh, do you have theory on why the Gopnik kids are such masters of the universe? 
Well, A, uh, you'd have to talk to the next generation of Gopnik kids about why they are not masters of the universe. I think, you know, oh, we'll get a solid second, shade right there. Yeah, we'll get a second, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, an efflorescence of bitter memoirs. In fact, <laughs> I, asked, I said that once to my kids. I said, you know, the two rules in our family are no piercings below the waist and no bitter memoirs. And they said they already had written their bitter memoirs, even had titles for it. My daughter was going to call her book because, you know, I wrote a book which she figures in called Through the Children's Gate, called The Other Side of the Gate. <laughs> so, <laughs> But if you if asking seriously, I think that we had the huge benefit of having uh, totally devoted uh, intellectual parents who had us very young. My mom had six kids by the time she was 30. So, and that meant that the process... No, are there any twins or... No, it's all straightforward Jewish hillbilly stuff. Wow. You know, it's, you know, six kids in 10 years. There's 10 years between Allison and Melissa, the youngest. And they were in the process of discovering uh, ideas, intellect, literature, poetry, modern art themselves, because they both came from very simple, you know... Got it. Instead Jewish... of derailing them, they exactly. took you guys along. Exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. All right. Why do we need a book defending liberalism? Well, Why as, are we here? <laughs> <laughs> because it seemed to me that liberalism was under attack, uh, that it, people were disinclined to call themselves liberals. Obviously, the the fiercest and the most dangerous and the most uh, pointed and, and brutal attack is the attack of Trumpism. That's a, an all-out attack on liberal values, on the institutions of liberal democracy, on pluralism itself, and so on. So the uh, what do they call that in screenwriting classes? The initial impetus, I have a better word, the inciting episode, the inciting incident. The inciting incident for this book was the uh, election night in 2016 when my then 17-year-old daughter, Olivia, was completely freaked out by the result and felt that everything that she had been taught to believe were significant values were uh, crumbling. And so I wanted to write for her, having failed to reassure her that night uh, on, a, on a grand scale, I wanted to write for her a kind of uh, a letter on liberalism, why the values that I believed and I thought were not just transient uh, affectations or just uh, a family inheritance, that they were, they were forged through history and that they had been more important than anything else, as that they had been inhabited by extraordinary people. Most of the time when people write books about liberalism, particularly academic books, they tend to be uh, reasonably, not reasonably, unreasonably dry. They tend to be all about the contractual side of liberalism. Liberalism as a bunch of atomized individuals pursuing their utilities uh, to the to the brink of the abyss. And that wasn't the liberalism that I had studied, learned, been writing about for 30 years in The New Yorker. So I wanted to take her on a kind of uh, 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 liberal pirates of the Caribbean ride in another direction. What is the boundary of this liberalism? Are we talking about the American liberal segment, the Hubert Humphreys and Barack Obamas? Are you talking about classical liberalism, the liberal philosophy that stretches across Europe and includes people who we would think of as libertarians? Right. What are you, what, well, what are you defending like here? Like any, any uh, useful term, liberal has had many uh, versions and many instantiations. That's true of everything. It's true of conservative as well. You could well. say like any useless term. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, you couldn't say any useless term because a useless term doesn't make distinctions. It doesn't make discriminations because it doesn't allow but people to- I'm saying because that's a tough thing. Sometimes when right. a term has gone through too many permutations, right. people are arguing about it, but they don't know what they're arguing about. Yes, that that can happen, but it's more like a like term neoliberal. like- neoliberal. Right, like <laughs> neoliberal, which I is- But one of the ways you know, I think, that the difference between a useful term that's had many different lives and a useless term 
that is is simply a a, a, a curse or a pejorative is do people self-identify that way? Right. No, I have never known anybody who self-identifies as a neoliberal. Uh, Although and, it's starting. Is there's it really? A, there is a backlash to the backlash. Well, I see your friend Matt Iglesias yeah, identifies himself. Shell, right. Which but comes out of, there's a subreddit called Our Neoliberal, oh, which really? is yeah. developing a kind of mimetic culture around neoliberalism, uh, which we can come back to. I think is super interesting. But, but, but that's more the ironic embrace. It's like calling yourself a kike if you're, if you're a Jew, right? That I don't it, think it is. I think, really? I mean, there, think they, there is, look, everything on the internet is wrapped in so many layers of irony mm-hmm. that we're all drowning. But right. nevertheless, there is a, I think that there is a, this is the way I would put it. I think that the idea, the neoliberal has been thrown as a term at people who are just liberals. And as such, it's creating uh, like a backlash right. among people who are liberals who now they've been given definition in their term. And it's like, wait, I actually do believe in free trade or I do believe in you know this approach to, to, to technocratic I believe governance. in more of what neoliberalism is if, supposed to entail than – my then my haters would want me to. If Barack that. Obama is supposed to be a neoliberal, right. well, he's actually very popular, so there are yes. going to be a lot of neoliberals. <laughs> yeah, right. But but this is this is what I'm asking. We right. can we can put a pin in neoliberal as a as a kind of offshoot of liberalism. But are you defend? Is Ronald so Reagan me, a liberal? No, not in my okay. Not I think nobody and nobody called him a liberal in his lifetime. So there's a specific there's a poli sci use of the term liberal that entails everybody who participates in the institutions of liberal democracy. Right. So Ronald Reagan there is, is a liberal. liberal. Margaret yes. Thatcher is a liberal. Uh-huh. Uh, Pat Buchanan is a liberal. Sort and, of. This is sort, and so on. I mean, you can make it. Buchanan he may not actually, believe in some yes, of those. Yes, he, he doesn't there. believe in those, in those institutions, in fact. But what I'm trying to do in this book is to bring the use of the term liberal right into alignment with the way we use it naturally, the way we use it ordinarily in our everyday language. When we say the Democratic Party, and you see this all the time in polls, is becoming more liberal, you don't believe mean it's moving in a more radically free market direction. You mean it's moving in the direction that I'm trying to give a genealogy for in this book. You mean it's moving in a direction that believes passionately in reform believes that reform is possible and reform is necessary, believes in reform through democratic measures, but also through uh, social organization, also through uh, activism, as we as we describe it, uh, believes in a process of reform, but still believes in reform through reason, believes that reform is possible not through violence, but through uh, a process of public reasoning. And th- the point I'd, I'd make to is that that sense of liberal, which corresponds almost perfectly to the way we use it in our ordinary speech, is uh, one that begins to grow up at a specific moment. It begins to appear in the 1860s, specifically after the end of the American Civil War, uh, at a time when the British Liberal Party is actually organized as a liberal party for the first time, when French Republicanism, which as no one now recalls, had been completely suppressed for a very long time. France was living under an empire at that time, a very autocratic empire began to, in part as a response to the uh, the Northern victory in the Civil War, began to vibrate again. That's when, and this is where my book begins, as you know, it, that's when the Statue of Liberty gets built. And we don't remember that the Statue of Liberty isn't built as a monument to American immigration. We have that association because our grandparents passed under it. It was offered as a, a symbol of this new rebirth of liberalism, uh, from French Republicans to uh, American uh, to American Republicans in in that day and in that sense, so it's it's that vein of liberalism. It emanates from it. Ha- if it has, I'm going to stop you sure. on the history for a minute here because something you said is interesting to me because it wasn't what I would have thought having read the book, which is if somebody says the Democratic Party is becoming more liberal, they mean it in the way you mean it. 
But I think they tend to mean the Democratic Party is becoming more left. They're moving from the Affordable Care Act to Medicare for all. They're moving from, you know, incremental regulation on energy to a climate tax. They're moving to a carbon tax, I'm sorry. And something that you write in the book, which is a really interesting argument, is that Liberalism is as distinct a tradition as exists in political history, but it suffers from being a practice before it is an ideology, a temperament and a tone and a way of managing the world more than a fixed set of beliefs. Talk to me about the idea of liberalism as a temperament, because there are people who are further to what people mean of when they talk of the liberal left, who are a lot less liberal in temperament than people who are to their right. Yes, I think that's that's certainly true, and we can we could name them. And uh, well, I think we should. I'm going to try to get the boundaries okay. of this very clear. All right, so. Liberalism is a temperament in the sense that if you look at the great liberal philosophers, even the ones who are themselves academic or um, uh, stringent in that way, John Stuart Mill is my greatest hero and is in many respects the hero of this book, both as a liberal thinker and as a lover. Um, uh, He's also my greatest hero as a lover. Oh, good. That's well. Who, <laughs> who wouldn't put him first? I have a picture of him on my desk with his his great teacher and lover, Harriet Taylor. Um, isn't somebody who, from whom you can say, as you can from his contemporary Karl Marx, this is what Mill believed. Mill believed all of these things were necessarily true, and that if you follow this set of predictions about how the future will turn out, you will have a political program that you can follow. Uh, there's no scheme like that. There's no, there's no comparable dialectic in Mill's work. Mill is, uh, in that sense, is an empirical philosopher. He's sometimes in favor of absolute, uh, absolute enfranchisement. Other times he's uh, reluctant about it. He deeply believes that the end of social life should be the fulfillment of your fate, the fulfillment of your potentials and possibilities. And since everybody's potentials and possibilities are different, there isn't going to be a single rule. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to try at understanding that there that liberalism was a temperament, to give examples of what that liberal temperament was like. But I think it's one that we all experience. Barack Obama, to land on the name you just used, is a kind of perfect example of what we mean by a liberal temperament. And he displayed it, I think, uh, every day in his language, everything from his that wonderful prefix of look, right? Because the look meant was the essence of the liberal temperament. was Let's not bullshit each other. We both know what the facts are in this case, and we can use rhetoric to blind everyone to the facts in this case, or we can look at the facts in the case. That's what look meant as he used it. Oh, that's it. interesting. It was a close read of yeah. his look. <laughs> yes. Whereas well, Reagan's well, I always felt, man, I'm not as dangerous as you think I am just because I'm espousing things that sound radical. Well, I'm not really. Uh, it was a different kind of uh, active pacification. Also, well tends to be a turn in a conversation. Yes. And so well, it's a way of changing the, changing the subject. Changing subject. Yeah. Changing. That may be a good point. Well... Mm -hmm. Here's something else, though. <laughs> yes. Well, ketchup may be a vegetable. You two are young to remember ketchup as a vegetable, Ezra, but that was the kind of thing. But I believe in a shining city on the hill. It's a good right. rhetorical term. My favorite prefix of our time is the um, the Ivy League so. Do you, do you know this one? No. Everyone you meet at an Ivy League school, when you ask them a question, you say, are you planning to go home for Thanksgiving? They say, so, and then they pause. And then it's they're slowing down to try and simplify the complex scheme that they have to explain to someone as simple as you are. And you come across it all the time. They, you know, they take a deep breath. Um, should we, um, uh, should we, can we raise taxes to the 1950s level? You ask an economist. So that involves a couple of different questions. You get, so I have eliminated the so from my vocabulary. 
But coming back to the liberal temperament, Obama is a wonderful instance of what a liberal temperament is. And it was clearly a source of frustration to him that he couldn't uh, institutionalize it, that he solved a lot of problems and solved them very well. But the analogy he always used is, I'm turning a very big ship around. Yeah. And I'm trying to turn the ship around. And you'll see that the ship is headed in a different direction by the time I'm done. But you won't feel it lurching as we go. Unspool the temperament for me. Right. So let me suggest something. My guess is you don't think Bernie Sanders is a representative of the liberal temperament in the way Obama is. Yes, I think that's true. What is the difference between their temperaments, given that on many policies, if not, though not all, they would end up in a similar place? They'd be, they'd be quite congruent. Yes. I, I think you could say Bernie Sanders is much more in the Jeremy, is like Jeremy Corbyn in the in England, in the British Labour Party. I think it's, uh, first of all, it is that look. It's that urge to um, explain and justify and also to lend credence to your opponent's point of view. That's something Obama always was inclined to do. He didn't ever get any credit from it from his actual opponents. But it was something that his rhetoric and his tone and indeed his actions always uh, entailed. There are no bad people on the other side. They just haven't been sufficiently persuaded by it yet. Uh, Bernie Sanders strikes me as being a good example of a much more fundamentally fanatic temperament. Truth and goodness is uh, monopolized by our side. The people who don't share our point of view are just wrong are just wrong. And we may have to abide or manipulated. by them. Or even, yes, even more so, manipulated by big corporations. I don't know if you saw Yasha Monk, who's nobody's idea of a conservative, wrote a piece that um, sort of startled me about having heard uh, the Sanders speech not long ago in which he said, Sanders seemed to have no sense that there was an autocratic left tradition, uh, that autocracy and authoritarianism only emanated from the right, and it was a libel or a slander. I would say Sanders, I mean, look, Sanders clearly has a sense there have been literal right. auto, liberal autocrats. Um, left autocrats. Left right. autocrats, I'm right. sorry. But the thing about Sanders, which I do think is true, is Sanders is not inclined to think in terms of counterargument. Yes. He doesn't naturally, Obama tried to naturally inhabit the people who he thought he was persuading. And I think Sanders sees things much more as a power collision. Yeah. He said uh, he has said explicitly that he thinks there's only 10 to 20 percent of the country that agrees with the Republicans. And it's really just the money that is right. pulling the wool over people's eyes. So if you can destroy the thing creating all the false consciousness, mm -hmm. then you can break through. Yes. Well, that's a classic. That's a perfect um, delineation of the classic left liberal divide. Liberals actually believe in persuasion and leftists historically have believed in power. They believe that the 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 rhetoric of persuasion and the institutions that are supposedly there for persuasion are phony, basically, and that all there is is the confrontation of power, and the only question is who's got more power at any one moment. That's a that's a very big difference. That's not just a rhetorical difference; it's a difference in how you uh, conceive the world, and it creates a and in the real world when it actually uh, takes the form of uh, political power, it has very very different consequences. Is Elizabeth Warren a liberal? I think she, yes, I think so. I'm reluctant, you know, I'm, I didn't want to write this book in order to write a political platform or write a polemic about the 2020 elections. As you know, having read it, I start off with the inciting episode of Trump, but then Trump disappears from the book. This was an extremely difficult for me to have Trump disappear from the book, but I did it for a reason. Um, and that was simply that I wanted to affirm values and demonstrate a genealogy of liberalism rather than uh, engaging in a, a political polemic for mm -hmm. which I'm ill-equipped in which I don't think oh, I don't can... sell yourself short. <laughs> well, I mean, it. you know, Ezra, that's not the obviously I have passionate political opinions like everyone has passionate political opinions. I think the, the what this book can add to those arguments is a sense of the history going backwards and a sense of liberalism as something very different from the dry contractual 
atomizing business. Let me sometimes put my cards on the table here. So, um, so you sent me an email about the book, right? And as you know, I sort of emailed back and was nice and said I'd love to take a look, but brushed you off a little bit. And Did I, you? I, yeah. It shows you. It shows you what a what a. a uh, well, I was like, I don't know. You know, yeah, we've got no, a busy schedule. No, the podcast. I'm, I'm you know, and I, I I pulled down the book and I was reading it and I was like, oh, there's something really important in here. Like you are describing something in the liberal temperament that seems to me to clarify something in the divisions we have that often goes unclarified. We want to talk about everything in terms of ideology, so it becomes very hard in a binary political system to separate people who might end up in certain policy places together from each other. Like, why is there this fight between people who have a red rose on Twitter and people who don't, who in general come down on pretty similar policies, but there's something temperamentally uh, dividing them. That said, the reason I'm pushing you in a place you don't like to go in the book is the parts of the book that I struggled with is where, well, is liberal just somebody Adam Gopnik likes? Oftentimes in the the going backwards and looking at people of all kinds of different ultimate political opinions, and you were saying a moment ago, Ronald Reagan is not a liberal. If you're not going to ground liberalism and having a view about how to solve the questions of the day, if it's really just about listening to each other and having a pragmatic, realistic temperament that recognizes that politics is a slow boring of hard boards, as Max Weber said, then at some point you're just saying that it's um like the people who are both right and kind of nice were the liberals, and the people who weren't, weren't. And so that, I want to try to understand, because I do think it's important to define a tradition of liberalism, but I think at this moment when it's so under challenge, you actually do have to get into the the guts of like, well, who is and who isn't? Sure. Two things I think I need saying there. First of all, the, the, uh, the namby-pamby description, right? People who believe in investing in other people's arguments, who believe in the principle of pluralism and believe in slow war mm-hmm. things. That's not a trivial description. That's no, a, it's not. That's a newcomer to human affairs. In other words, that's not something that you can just go anywhere in human history and discover. Just the opposite. That's something that's that's a a tiny recent uh, bloom in human history. So one of the points of this book is not to treat that as though it were a trivial or self-evident proposition. Uh, it seems trivial and self-evident to us because we've lived with its benefits for so long of that particular kind of temperament. Secondly, it's certainly not the case that I think that everybody I like is a liberal. In fact, I tried to inhabit this book with many people who I greatly admire, ranging from on the right, Charles de Gaulle, Benjamin Disraeli, Charles Taylor, the great Canadian philosopher, to on the left, someone like Emma Goldman, a great uh, anarchist, uh, uh, passionate uh, believer who was never a liberal in any sense. You have a really wonderful capsule profile of her in there. It's really worth uh, the price of admission. Well, thank you. I love Emma Goldman because uh, I think she's one of the great figures of the early 20th century. She was expelled from the United States by J. Edgar Hoover. People tend to forget that. And then she went to Russia right after the Russian Revolution under Lenin, not under Stalin, and recognized that it was a nightmare. Had the, the, the balls and the character to say that and got excommunicated from the the broad left, but remained an anarchist throughout her life, ended up in my native country of Canada, I'm proud to say. And the point I make about her, and it relates to something you were just uh, talking about, Ezra, is that she ended her life quite happily in Canada. She was able to lecture about anarchism and Eugene O'Neill and Little Theater, but she never, to use contemporary jargon, she never theorized what had happened. Canada is a liberal country. In many ways, it's a model liberal country in which people were perfectly prepared to let Emma Goldman speak freely Whenever she wanted to, nobody threw her in jail. Nobody threw her out of the country. Canada's achievement of that kind of liberal tolerance is not a trivial achievement. It's not an obvious achievement. It's an achievement very, very hard worn 
through a lot of human history and through a lot of very particular Canadian history, which I actually raise in the book through Canadian traditions of, uh, of necessary tolerance because you have two founding peoples of very different kinds. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd, I'd add to it is that, yeah, I think we can talk about uh, uh, who has a liberal temperament and who doesn't. And I'll gladly take on the Sanders-Warren case as an example of it. It seems to me that Elizabeth Warren is a good example of someone with a liberal temperament who's capable of a lot of pragmatic reasoning, who always turns to pragmatic reasoning for her arguments, who doesn't argue ideologically typically, but says, look, this is how uh, this is how we regulate uh, corporate abuses. This is how we move towards Medicare for all. Very Canadian temperament in some ways. Uh, so I think we can certainly talk about that. One of the foundational impulses in this book, though, to, to uh, repeat myself, and I hope not too uh, obnoxiously, is that the temperament you're describing is, oh, well, it's just liberals are nice and listen to other people and, ex and expect things to take some time to have happen. That's not a self-evident proposition. I think the person you talk about in the book who gives the clearest description of this is Baird Rustin. Yes. Do you want to talk a bit about his idea of change and, and how you would separate his liberal approach to it from, from other approaches to, to reformist change? Sure, absolutely. Rustin, as you know, is one of my heroes in this book and al always has been. I remember watching him in the, uh, at the, uh, I think it was the McGovern Convention uh, in 1972 and being hugely impressed by him just as a speaker and a person. As not enough people know, but everyone should, he was uh, gay and African-American, arrested, imprisoned 25 times in his life, 24 times for being African-American, once for being homosexual. And he was the great organizer of the March on Washington. He was a disciple of A. Philip Randolph, the first great black union leader, uh, another remarkable figure. And Rustin was the guy who, when nobody could organize the March on Washington, they called back. He had been excommunicated from the civil rights movement because he was homosexual. And he'd been excommunicated in a complicated move by uh, Adam Clayton Powell, who was then uh, the uh, uh, Harlem politician, congressman, and by Levison, who was... Um, uh, King's uh, left-wing white uh, supporter, uh, ex-communist. Some argue <laughs> still communist, but but let's call him an ex-communist for that thing. Point is, he said Rustin could only organize, couldn't organize the civil rights movement. He could only organize the movement of homosexuals, meaning that that was not part of the civil rights struggle at, at that time, as indeed it wasn't. Rustin goes to work to organize the March in Washington. What does that mean? He organizes the March in Washington. It means he charters the buses, finds enough buses to get everybody there on Friday night, makes enough sandwiches. I was joking with the kids. I could have called the book A Thousand Small Sandwiches in Rustin's honor to feed everybody, creates the whole frame in which Dr. King can speak. And as you know, he said once that uh, Dr. King is a saint, but he couldn't organize vampires to go to a bloodbath. Rustin took on that liberal work of actually doing the slow, ugly, what I call the rhinoceros work of organizing it. The March in Washington happened and was a frame for Dr. King's great speech. Throughout his life, Rustin, in turn, got excommunicated again from uh, the, the struggle in many ways because he would not, he thought black power, which was the slogan, the next slogan, black nationalism, was a huge mistake. He, he rejected it completely because he saw that it was not, uh, it wasn't coalition building, it was isolating. And he thought that isolating the African-American struggle from other struggles was a was a crazy idea arithmetically, if not, uh, if, if not morally. And he never made that turn. In fact, stayed within, very much as Frederick Douglass stayed within the confines of the Republican Party in the 19th century, he stayed within the Democratic Party. Became a supporter of Scoop Jackson, actually, as people sometimes tend to forget. Devoted himself to 
that kind of democratic activism and defined what I think of as the three liberal step, three dance steps of liberal activism, uh, constitutional means, democratic measures, and uh, nonviolent proceedings. I think I got the, the nouns uh, missed up, but those were the three basic ideas, uh, which were very much part of the inheritance of Douglas. Another, And so there's an idea there that to just draw it out a little bit of working within the system. I mean, something that often seems to me to be a separation, both for good and for bad, is at least within certain kinds of systems. Um, the people I think you would describe as liberals tend to want to work within it or alter it from within it. Yes, right? but they want to work within the system, Ezra. And this is, I think, a crucial point because they believe that the system is profoundly flawed and in many, many ways unjust and incompetent, but basically on the right track. That was, you know, Frederick Douglass's greatest speech, and greatest American speech, right? Uh, the famous um, uh, not quite July 4th speech that he made was devoted to the idea. This is the tight of slavery. And he said, everyone's saying that the Constitution is a, a, a useless and foul document because it was written by slaveholders for slavery. He said, I say it's a great liberty document that we have not yet fully inhabited. That's the classic Obama, Douglas view. It was very much the view of Rustin. So it's not simply working within the system in a kind of passive surrender. Well, what else can we do? It's saying the system can be, has done good things. The system can do good things again. But Douglas is an interesting example right. to use there. I mean, as is Lincoln, who I think you'd probably say is a liberal, I would imagine. Abs yes, absolutely. But both of them, and, and Douglas even more so, there's a decision to work outside the system, right? Yes. The, the, there's a decision to go to war and to prosecute the bloodiest war in American history in a in, in a straightforward manner because the system is failing. So that's also a question. There, you know, there are folks who would have liked to see it go the right. other way. You just keep making these compromises down the road, right? But I think that that's uh, misstates where Link, where both Lincoln and Douglas came out. Uh, Douglas makes the crucial decision, and it's foundational to American democracy, new American history, not to go with John Brown, not to side with John Brown and with Garrison both of whom believed that the Constitution was hopelessly corrupted by the existence of slavery. I mean, literally not to go with John Brown on the Harper's, Harper's Ferry Raid, but to side with Lincoln, who, whom he found exasperating, off the point, um, uh, wheedling, compromising, all of those things. But Douglas made the crucial decision to side with Lincoln and, to, and the Republican Party, as it was then, hard as it is to remember, in that struggle. And Lincoln and Douglas's point, Lincoln's point above all, was not that the system was failing. It's that the system was right, but that people were seceding from the system. And he said, you can't secede from the system. You have to accept the system's uh, uh, claims. That was the crucial thing about his great Cooper Union speech, which people no longer remember. He ran down the list of all the signatories to the declaration and said they all spoke out on slavery. Slavery is a national issue. If I win an election on an anti-slavery platform, you can't, you don't, can't walk out the door at that point because you don't like the result. So Lincoln's point throughout was not that the system is broken. He said the system's fine, but you're seceding from the system. You're trying to break the system is what he said to the South. And it's why he said always, it's not they, – they don't have a separate country that we're at war with. They're just a bunch of traitors running around um, with a, a group of terrorists. So this I think is a question it brings to – so you, you write that liberals believe in reform rather than revolution because results are in. It works better. More permanent positive social change is made incrementally rather than by revolutionary transformation. And I guess the question it raises, and, and the, the Lincoln-Douglas um, one is a, is a good way to think about it, is when is something a reform and when is it a revolution? Well, it's a reform when it – I mean it's a simple in Bayard Rustin's turn. It's nonviolent. It's a nonviolent uh, well, alteration. That, civil war is 
Yeah, well, the Civil War, two things, though, about the Civil War is a bit like the war on Hitler, right? It's the one you can, we can always point to and say, well, we needed to do this then. Uh, Two things I think are true. One is that the Civil War was a catastrophically violent uh, event. It was not something that we should point to casually and say, well, look at the Civil War. That was a time when you had to have violent change. Liberalism isn't pacifism. I discuss this at some length in the book, right? Because liberalism involves revolutions. The American Revolution was a liberal revolution. The French Revolution was a liberal revolution. Liberalism isn't pacifism and doesn't pretend to be that way. But liberalism as a historical entity, as a, as a temperament, is extremely skeptical of warfare, extremely skeptical of military solutions, doesn't glorify them at all. That's one of the reasons why the great hero of the Civil War is Grant, who was the uh, the liberal general in, in that sense, not Custer, not somebody who was engaged in glorifying military adventurism for its own sake, which is very different, say, from the uh, right-wing authoritarian tradition. So in all of those ways, uh, we can always imagine situations. Our grandfathers fought uh, in the war against Hitler, and I think that we all agree that that was a necessary, a necessary thing. Liberalism isn't pacifism, but it tends to, v- it views the glorification of violence with great abhorrence. And it recognizes that historically, uh, episodes of enormous violence have been uh, as tragic as they are sometimes essential. Let me push on this idea that liberalism doesn't uh, glorify violence because I think it gets to an interesting tension in liberalism. I think that there have been many icons of liberalism who have, I don't want to say glorified violence, but overly rationalized violence. I think there, there can often be a collision between the the reasoning in the liberal temperament, the idea that the world can be understood and figured out and improved by usually men, although not only men, of, of great mental capacity and interventionism uh, and, and particularly unwise interventionism. So, I mean, I guess the, the canonical example here is the best and brightest, it's but Vietnam. there's a there's right. a deep liberal interventionist streak. You can think about the war in Iraq and there are uh, a number of sort of humanitarian interventionists who, you know, Kenneth Pollack, that world of people. And so one thing that can liberalism is not in general, uh, forgetting whether or not it's pacifism, I think often one of its great sins has been to be to be so confident in its ability to project into the future that it is willing to take on uh, in military interventions that then get way outside of its control very quickly. Well, I would broaden the indictment, actually, Ezra. I think that your indictment is exactly what I was going to say. What you're critiquing there is liberalism's great sin, which is the imperial tradition and its connection with imperialism in every way. And as you know, I make a point in the book when I come to the leftist critique Mm -hmm. of landing on that immediately and what I think is the single most horrific instance of it, the, the... Congo genocide in the beginning of the, the 20th yeah, century. Yeah, you have a beautiful line here that I want to read, that Western civilization is a Belgian genocide and indeed the Jewish genocide just as much as it is Darwin and Sewers. Yes. Well, the Sewers, I should explain, comes about because I glorify, and, and proudly so, the relationship of British liberals in the 1850s and 60s to building the first uh, the first great city sewer, or one of the first great city sewers. Um so the indictment of uh, liberal imperialism, which we can extend the, I think the example, the classic example is not so much Iraq, which isn't really a liberal, which liberals in our sense for the most part opposed, but of Vietnam. I was just reading uh, Max Boot's book on uh, Lansdale on the, on the plane down from Seattle. And that's an, an instance in, uh, perfectly of a rational temperament producing a horrific result. Uh, that's the deep stain on the liberal tradition. 
uh, two things I say about it in the book, and I'd say about it here. One is that uh, liberalism not being a perfectionist or utopian ideology accepts at the beginning, it's part of the temperament that, um, as what the next thing you say, mistakes will be made, right? That uh, we're all, uh, when we begin to act as, uh, certainly as global actors, as social actors, uh, in the minimal sense, we become uh, indicted in, uh, in, in error and often in blood. Uh, that's not, uh, in itself, it seems to me, uh, a criminal indictment. The question is, what do you do to correct it? And liberalism, as a living uh, tradition, has done more to have a corrective conscience instilled in all of its institutions than any other system of human management, much less human government, that, w that we know of. I raise the Belgian genocide, but also point out that it was exposed by a very brave uh, Clark, as the Brits would say, who then became a journalist, uh, Morel. Uh, same thing is true about Vietnam. We rightly see Vietnam as a liberal tragedy. It was a tragedy of the Kennedy and Johnson administration. So as they were doing, as Johnson was doing all that good work in civil rights, he was prosecuting this horrendous and unjust war. But uh, liberal institutions were there as well to expose its injustice, to permit uh, its protest, all of which went on despite uh, the existence and power of someone like Richard Nixon, who clearly had no uh, appetite, no tolerance for protest in his soul. So that's the first thing you'd say is liberalism tries to implant a corrective conscience in all of its institutions. And the second thing you'd say is exactly that kind of moral accounting is what liberals are responsible for. I try very hard to do it without any uh, special pleading in this book. We have moral accounting to do. And the thing you'd say is that everyone has moral accounting to do. On the whole, liberals and liberalism have done a better job of their own moral accounting than either the left or the right have done. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So one thing that's cool about this book is you do a very good job instantiating the liberal temperament in the way it is written. Like the like oh, the, the medium is a message. Yes. There's a lot of 
considering strong forms of the critique against liberalism. And so I want to do a bit of that in this conversation too. So let me take the position. If I may just, as we yes. say, that delights me because that was the major ambition of this book. That's what I'm good at is, is writing. And what I wanted to do was not have the book depend on the specifics as much as be as model a tone, yeah. model a temperament. The book is a very interesting example of modeling the thing it's talking about. Yes. So you succeeded in that. I, I, I thought it was actually really quite wonderfully done. Let me take this from the position of a Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, Bernie Sanders is a guy who has been, I think, on the right side of most of these interventions, despite his lack of spending a lot of time with the people who disagree with him and make a good argument about you know, what Saddam Hussein has been doing and how evil he is. And that the liberal obsession with, I don't want to call it tolerance, the liberal obsession with trying to hear everybody out and have a bunch of debates, uh, it ends up endlessly instantiating the people who already have power, the people who have the resources to marshal the data, because data does have to get marshaled and who pays for it often shapes the data we actually end up having. And that there's a kind of endless problem in liberalism that the very reasoning temperament that gives it its power and seduction is exactly where it goes awry because the person that that reasoning temperament ends up talking to are other people in power. And the people in power are the people who have money and sort of so on and down we go down the line until you, you get to this point of if you want to have a, a more rational, better society, you actually need a, a, a quite profound upheaval in power relations. What, what, is your, what is your response to that? Well, I have a couple of responses to it. One is that's the classic leftist critique of liberalism. It's not new. It dates back to the middle of the 19th century. I don't say that to deprecate it. I'm just saying that we have, as a consequence, a lot of empirical evidence on hand to suggest how that works out. I say at one point in the book, and I believe it's true, that the American right often writes as though the 19th century never took place. Uh, in other words, that uh, socialism and the radical left didn't emerge as a consequence of mass immiseration of working people in Europe, but just was a thing thought up by uh, highbrows. And the uh, left often writes as though the 20th century didn't take place, as though it had, didn't happen again and again that people said, we don't have time for liberal reasoning. Liberal reasoning in itself is just a masquerade of power. Uh, bourgeois parliaments actually, they talk a lot, but they never actually change anything fundamental. We have to be done with them. We have to move on to more radical measures. And when those radical measures take place, and they have, it's not that we're short of evidence. This is not 1900, it's 2019. They have been, without exception, catastrophic. Uh, when you eliminate those liberal institutions, of free press, uh, uh, but Bernie Sanders is talking about Norway. He's yeah. not talking about getting rid of the free press. And so let me let me yeah, yeah. let me finish. Okay, then you see that those what catastrophic uh, consequences of that are. So if what Bernie Sanders is talking about is classic social democratic reasoning of a kind that in my country of Canada is represented by the New Democratic Party and Britain has been represented by the Labour Party for a hundred years, not only is it is there nothing wrong with it, but it's an important part of the of the argument, and it's one that has been overdue in America for a long time. I have been arguing, as we're now, you will allow me a moment of pettish discontent. I have been arguing for national health insurance in America for longer than most of the people who are supporting it now can remember. I did a piece in The New Yorker in 1988 in favor of which Charlie Peters who was then running the Washington Monthly, reprinted as the best case for national health insurance. I did a debate with my friend Malcolm Gladwell 20 years ago, again in the Washington Monthly, for Canadian-style Medicare in America against – Malcolm was then arguing against it. He's come around. He was a libertarian then. Now he's a good liberal. Uh, so I, I have no – not only do I have, I have no issue, I've been making this case for my entire – life as a writer. 
The question is, how are we going to go about getting it? And there's a certain kind of, if I may be blunt, what you call infantile leftism, which you still find around now. And that is a belief that if you just have the will to insist on it, it will happen. What was wrong with Obama is he just didn't have the will. He was a spineless centrist and he just didn't insist that we have. We used to call this the Green Lantern theory of the presidency. Yes, exactly. It's all about having the will to make the ring work. Exactly, exactly. And this is still ever present. You see it, you see it uh, offered all the time and it doesn't correspond to reality. If you're going to accept, and the history of the 20th century means you have to accept uh, the persistence and the existence of liberal institutions, it means then that you're wired in of necessity to all of the consequences of pluralism. You know, incrementalism for me is not a virtue in and of itself at all. The other great uh, cause that I've signed my name to countless times is gun control in America. And if I had my way, if I were, you know, a Bernie Sanders supporter, we would have uh, Canadian-style gun laws in America tomorrow morning if I were president and had a majority in Congress. Uh, I would actually am an extremist on this subject. I see there's no reason, I can't see a reason for any citizen in a democracy to own a handgun. Uh, I, I, you know, hunting rifles, I can see. I would ban all handguns. And I would do it tomorrow morning, not over the, over the next 10 years. I recognize, because I recognize that the limits of my ego and the limits of my desires are not the boundaries of the world. And so I recognize I'm not going to get that. I'm going to continue to argue for gun sanity. I'm going to continue to work for gun sanity. I'm glad to say that for the first time in my lifetime, one begins to see glimmers of success in the dissolution of the NRA in lots of ways and in the success of local legislation and the reality that there's growing a kind of critical mass of public opinion. Incrementalism on gun control is not something I want or like. It's something that I recognize as a necessary consequence of subscribing to pluralistic institutions. What? So first, I am here for all critiques of Greenland and theory of the presidency. It is an <laughs> obsession of mine how ridiculous that argument is. But I, I would extend the, the Greenland theory of government, I would put it, sure. not just to the presidency. I think the, the version of you hear more from the left critique is actually about popular mobilization, that liberals come in. They, they come into power. Obama is, I think, the, the, the canonical example of this. And I would, I'm more defensive of him on this, but, but let me make the, make the critique. They'd hear you somebody who was a tremendous organizer, had been a community organizer, organized one of the most remarkable political movements in modern American history to, to create something that nobody even thought was possible at that moment uh, in, in the American presidency. And that he gets into power. And that, mo that movement is either demobilized or de at least demobilizes, right, depending on where you want to put the, the verb on it. And that the, the, the problem with liberals is that the very proceduralism that you are talking about as an advantage is just one way of looking at the system. The other way of looking at the system is that it is supposed to have or can have within it much more popular mobilization. And you could say that people saying this forget how the 20th century happened, how civil rights happened, how the women's rights movement happened, how the anti-Vietnam War movement happened. That unless you have people in the streets, unless you have people really seeing that popular mobilization is a way you make change that a political system does not want to make, that you get nowhere. And that the problem is that liberals keep wanting to have a technocratic argument, not a popular mobilization strategy. Both work within the constraints of the system we're talking about. But I think that the argument Sanders makes for himself is that what will change everything is the movement he will create and sustain because he will care more about sustaining that movement than sitting down with pharma to negotiate out um, drug policy. Right. So two things I think are true. One is isn't that it's uh, integral to the liberal tradition to believe that you have to have popular activism 
to go along with government action. In fact, as I emphasize in the book, uh, the liberal tradition depends on uh, an idea of community independent of government, that that's where fundamental change first appears and first gets made. It's the oft-examined um, and oft-demonstrated uh, theory of the coffeehouse theory of the origins of the Enlightenment, that it's people talking outside the state. It's not what happens in the court of Louis, but it's what happens in the coffeehouse in Paris that produces new ideas and the essential social momentum that make uh, make for profound change. So I'm totally on board with that. That's why I make Bayard Rustin one of the heroes of this book, because that's what Rustin spent his life doing. The point, though, is that that kind of profound social change only happens through the marriage of social activism and liberal institutions. We can point all around the world. Right now, we're looking at Hong Kong, right? We can look at Tehran and Iran, where you clearly have major movements of social mobilization, where you clearly the popular sentiment is all on one side of an issue, and which gets no traction at all, simply gets shut down by an autocratic government, a theocratic government, or a whatever weird communist capitalist combine China is right now. So if you don't have those liberal institutions, then all of that social activism only ends up in massacre, in plain English, right? And that was true about green movement in Iran, and it's been true, seems to be the likeliest outcome right now. So my point is not to be in any sense against that kind of social mobilization. And you can fairly criticize Obama for having temperamentally or in, uh, with a false kind of pragmatism, having given up on it too soon. But my point is, at a moment when liberal institutions, Ezra, are under direct assault every day, that to treat them as though they're transparent or obvious, or we could recreate them at will by waving a magic wand, that they're the things to be impatient about rather than the things to defend and cherish and uh, reinforce, that seems to me a fundamental and potentially fatal mistake. So there, there's a resonance here between your book and the work I think of as Steven Pinker doing right now, mm -hmm. actually, which is, I think there are arguable things in, in, in Pinker's work in terms of the foundation upon which he rests his idea of progress. But I do think of the major message of it being there has been progress of an extraordinary type in the past couple of hundred years. And we need to be in our alertness to what is wrong, still very, very respectful of how much has gone right. There's something you could throw out here that if you lost it, I mean, you go back, like the immiseration of all other parts of human history is unimaginable from where we sit now. And it sounds to me a little bit like you're, you're making that argument for liberalism, that, that people need to that in being alert to what has gone wrong, you can miss how much has actually day-to-day -day gone right, and that is liberalism and, and, and these ideas that are responsible Liberal for institutions. That. Well, it's very funny. I just did a debate with Steve Pinker about this in, uh, in Boston about two months ago. And, you know, Steve is a McGillite, as am I, as is my sister, Allison. We McGill all being the, the, the college in, in Canada. In Canada, in Montreal, that we all went to. We all had the same advisor, the, the same professor. So maybe we're all, you this know. This just made me into a democratic <laughs> social. Like, a, this is grotesque. <laughs> That's, but McGill is a, pub, is a private university, but it's publicly funded, by the way, like Canadian universities. That's another whole other argument. So maybe that we're all under the star of uh, Al Bregman was this extraordinary teacher's name. In any case, yes, I think that's true. Where I disagree strongly with Steve, and this is what we argued out, yeah. and it may be the narcissism of small differences, because as you described, we're on the same side of many things. Steve is um, what, um, what they used to call a sci uh, scientistic, right? He believes that the great revolution was the revolution in the empirical sciences, and that if we put our faith in the empirical sciences, we can't go wrong. And that the struggle is essentially between the empirical and scientific temperament and the superstitious and non-scientific temperament. I think that's a mistake, as I try to show in this book, that um, 
when you think about liberal humanism, the humanism preceded liberalism. That the what we call humanism are a, are a number of instincts or or discoveries about compassion and sympathy, which don't depend at all on the on the empirical sciences and are independent of them. And I am, and it's the part of the book that I am in this weird way proudest of, though it's probably the most invisible part of the book. I'm something of a fatalist, something of a, of a tragic fatalist. I think that one of the important lessons that we can learn from the right is that even if we solved every one of the problems we're talking about, even if we had Canadian healthcare and Norwegian paternity leave and uh, uh, Swedish incarceration, even if we achieved all these things, we'd still be miserable. We'd still be miserable. Human life is eternally doomed by the nature of our mortality and our inability to achieve our desires to be as to be miserable. And I think that if you don't, and you need to incorporate that into your understanding of the world, and that I think is a kind of a part of what Camus would have called, you know, a tragic vision of life that I think uh, Steve is allergic to. I think is why so many liberals uh, end up flirting with Buddhism, actually, <laughs> in a that's very not, real yes, way. Yes, no, no, I think that's profoundly true. I, I think that that is one reason why Buddhism is becoming the, the liberal religion, because it exactly because it supplies a kind of uh, fatalistic existential uh, addendum to the liberal constitution of material progress. So I want to, we've talked a little bit about the left critique. I want to talk a little bit about the right critique. And you bring up what I do think is the strongest right-wing critique of liberalism, which is that liberalism is so obsessed with what the government can do and then what individuals should be allowed to do that it gives no thought to the mediating institutions of society, rips through communities, rips through churches. We're all bowling alone. Um, this is the Patrick Deneen critique of liberalism. He's been on the show before. Give me a little bit of your of your thinking on this because the 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 idea that our community ties are weakening and that may be a bad thing, it seems at least reasonable to me. I, I think it's completely reasonable and I try again to give the most sympathetic possible account I can of that critique. I try to give it, you know, Deneen is one example of it. I think that Deneen, as I say, the the problem with it is, is that he doesn't see liberal values of pluralism and tolerance as values. He sees them simply as non-values. And one of the things I think that's crucial- You mean to... that he kind of reads them into the baseline of yes, his society. exactly. I talked to him about this. He's He, he I think, is more circumspect now in, in terms of arguing that there's a lot to preserve. The question right. is just to, to appreciate right. the failures. But, you know, but this reminds me very much, it was like the thing, the, the kerfuffle over the last two weeks about Frenchism and all of that too, right? That you often on the right, on the on the hard intellectual right, you get this critique, liberalism is defunct. Liberalism is a complete failure. Liberalism has destroyed human lives and liberalism has destroyed community. And therefore, uh, uh, oh no, of course, we're going to keep... Uh, free elections and the equality right, of yes. women and every single thing that is the unique accomplishments of liberal societies we're going to keep. We're just going to somehow change it around so people agree with us more. And I think that that's a huge weakness of the right-wing critique. Uh, there are plenty of people who take it all the way out and say, just, you know, end the equality of women and uh, free elections and freedom of speech. Believe There are plenty of people who believe those things, but American right-wingers tend not to believe them. They tend to step away from the abyss when they find themselves staring into the abyss of true anti-liberalism. What well, I, I I would just I think that's true for Patrick. Yeah, Dean. Not, um, I would put a pin because I'm less sure of that than I was ten years ago. Uh, I agree with like, you. Like, is the, I, I was talking Donald, specifically. If Donald Trump right. had the power, yes. Like one thing I think is interesting, and I recognize this might be getting a little bit off of our track, but something I think that Trump has done is he's created space for people to make more theorized versions of the arguments he makes instinctually, and I do think you're seeing a 
resurgence. I mean, obviously in other countries, but here too, of an of an illiberal right that has always been there, but felt it had to argue much more firmly within the context of liberalism. And, and I think now you're seeing there are a lot of people who think, you know, if this goes the other way for much longer, it's not worth it. Yeah. It, Trump, who is a gangster with a gangster ethic and a gangster understanding of the world, gives license to people to have a gangster philosophy. That's basically one of the things that Well, he, it's not always a gangster philosophy. I mean, I, I notice yeah. a lot in terms of there is a version of religious conservatism that is liberal, and there's a version of it, and an understandable version of an internally coherent version that's quite illiberal. And well, I wouldn't call that version gangsterous, but somehow Trump's loose gangsterism right. has created an gives it, license and authority. Yes. I make that distinction, I think, quite clearly in the yes, book between do. what I call triumphal authoritarianism, of which Trump is a is a good, if insanely vulgar, example, and um uh, theocratic authoritarianism, which has a much more distinguished intellectual tradition, which Deneen, as we were talking about a moment ago, was inside it. The best example of that tradition, and it doesn't come really from, from the right, though it comes from a Catholic, is Charles Taylor's critique of liberalism, which he, as I explained in the book, you can simplify to saying liberals always want us to ask, what do I want? When the crucial question to ask as human beings is, where do I come from? Where am I? Rather than who am I? And that liberalism, by cutting away that foundation, cutting away the roots of human beings in clans and places, communities, uh, societies, even in tribal identity, uh, totally disfigures uh, humankind and disfigures our true impulses and on, on, so on. I, I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to those arguments in their, in, their, in their higher form. The thing I say in the book, and I think is true, is twofold. One is there is no organic society. All of those uh, uh, attacks are motivated by the beliefs that somewhere they did it better. And usually the nostalgic locus is medieval Europe, right? When the church was triumphant. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a hero of mine, always locates it there. But if you actually look at what medieval Europe was- He's been coming up a lot on this podcast. Really? Has he? I yeah, did, Chesterton's fence being the- Right. You know, I did a long, a long piece about Chesterton, which was truly in a life devoted to ambivalence was the most ambivalent thing I ever wrote because I both love him and fear him. Do you want to give a capsule of who he was? Sure, he was a, a great wit and aphorist and a fantasy writer of the um, Edwardian period, really, uh, the period right after Oscar Wilde, who took a turn, very uh, a tragic turn towards anti-Semitism. He became a ferocious anti-Semite. His admirers deny that he was a ferocious anti-Semite, but he was a ferocious anti-Semite. And then uh, towards various kinds of religious authoritarianism. He was a great theocratic authoritarian in that way in his uh, in his later life. But a uh, man of amazing poetic insight and, and uh, uh, an aphoristic wit to rival Oscar Wilde's uh, favorite writer of mine, even though I think he'd be a horrible person ever to come anywhere near power. Um, but I think that one of the critiques is you say there is no good organic society. It simply doesn't exist. Whenever you try and search for one, all you find are a sequence of excommunications. Uh, and then the other thing you'd say is, and I think this is probably the most important thing and the most easily overlooked for the same reasons that we often overlook the the triumphs of the liberals of liberal democracy and of uh, liberal institutions is that liberalism is very good at allowing people to have their own communities. There's a huge sense of persecution uh, on the part of certain Catholic and Christian intellectuals right now. But if you actually look at what they're complaining about by any historical standard, it's absurd. Nobody in America is prevented from uh, worshiping as a Christian uh, in the year 2019. What they complain about is that they no longer have a monopoly on certain kinds of cultural power. Um, but if that's what you want is a monopoly on cultural political power, 
then you, you, you can't have it. Then you can't have it. Then you have to be prepared. It's like in kindergarten. You have to be prepared to share, right? And that, I think, is what their, their real complaint is. And what, I, what strikes me always is, is that the liberal system, far from creating all of these atomized individuals who are constantly pursuing their own utilities, taking the next exam and going on to the next meritocratic institution, produces these extraordinary communities of like-minded people. You know, you can't be in Brooklyn on a Friday night without being stunned by proceeding from West Indian community to a Lubavitcher community to a Satmar community, marked out by their hats, their gait, their their uh, their rituals. Uh, you know, I go up in summer, I end this book on, on uh, Cape Cod where we go, and I'm always stirred and moved. We go to Provincetown, and that is a gay community that invented itself as a gay community over the last 30 years, as a place where gay people could go and feel them feel that they could breathe easy in the company of their of their kind. Liberalism is extremely good at building community and permitting community. It just always isn't always traditional community. Let me ask you something that is actually, I guess, a big question underlying a lot of this, which is how does liberalism in, in, in your conception of it, how does it decide if a society is doing well? How does it decide if it is doing well or if, if others? a society is doing well? What is it looking for? Well, as because, I – And let me, let me actually yeah. even sharpen this a little bit because something you were saying before when you were talking about the, the religious conservatives is, well, they're upset either – they shouldn't be upset because they can worship or they are upset because they're losing power. But I think a, a more generous read would be if you believe that the most important question in terms of eternal happiness is how many people follow – the the dictates of your particular god, well then rising secularization of a society and endless temptation built into your society, the siren call of drag queen story right. hour time, right. whatever, uh, <laughs> is sorry I can't I cannot I cannot stop laughing over what this started over I shouldn't do that it's not it's not um, generous uh, anyway a society that is endlessly built around individual flourishing and individual what ends up being within a capitalist context individual market desires can you know lead you in a in a in a really grim direction or you can imagine other ways of looking at society where you know some people say stop worrying about so much about gdp think about happiness or think about what's happening to the climate how do you how does liberalism decide if a society is on a is on the right track or the wrong track well the the first part of it right which is that it's absolutely true and i talk about this at length in the book if you believe you are in possession of the unique salvational doctrine of not just of humankind, but of the entire cosmos, if you believe that you know the crucial moment when the Godhead entered on earth and held out a promise of eternal life to everyone, and you were willing to compromise it away because it makes other people uncomfortable, you'd be crazy. That's the logic of not just of religious fundamentalism, that's the logic of Catholicism, to be perfectly, to be perfectly frank, and it's one that has worked itself out in exactly that way. It, they, we call it intolerant and they call it essential because we have the secret of salvation. Anybody who's trying to stop it is doing enormous damage to humankind. It's wrong. So it's true. And I think as – and I said this once actually in an interview with Vox that there are certain parts of liberalism as with any temperament, any set of beliefs that are uh, unjustified in the philosophical sense, that are foundational beliefs. If you want a society that's – broadly prosperous, uh, extremely plural, uh, on the whole quite peaceful with countless exceptions and, and failures, that's a pretty good model. If what you want is a society in which everything bends towards heroic conduct, if you want a Homeric society, that we don't have it in New York City, right? If what you want is a, a society that is 
uh, exquisitely attuned to the necessity of salvation, then you'd be happier in Byzantium. We don't have that really in New York City or in San Francisco either. Don't offer that. So it's certainly true that those foundational desires for peace, prosperity, broadly shared prosperity, and pluralism are, and for and a preference for nonviolence over violence, are in a certain sense, if you like, and this is why I call it a temperament, are tastes in the, in the broadest possible sense. I think that they're tastes we can argue for. Uh, I think they're tastes that we can justify. But you're absolutely right that they're not things that are, are foundationally transparent. They're a matter of choices. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go back to what Charles Taylor said. That the question is not who you are, it's where you're from. I don't believe that. But I do, I have come to believe, uh, as somebody who has devoted a lot of my life to the practice of persuasion, that persuasion is overrated in terms of the capacity of people to be persuaded. So I'm writing a book about politics. Um, It will not be as beautifully lyrically done as yours. Um, But one of the things that I think is true, having done a lot of research on polarization and and, and the way people form political opinions, is that we reason backwards from our identities, which are numerous, so that gives us some running room, not forwards from the evidence. It is very, very hard to convince somebody of something they don't already want to believe. And that one of the weaknesses of this kind of not just liberalism, but politics, and I'm not saying I have a better alternative, but one of the weaknesses of this kind of politics is that it imagines like a platonic philosopher society that we don't have. And so you end up with a lot of paradox of tolerance problems where you have all kinds of people arguing all kinds of things as if what will happen here is the best argument wins and then that winner wins the the, the debate and people are convinced. Um, when in fact, it's not that it's simply a, a question of power, but it very much is a collision of identity constantly a collision of identity and that the inability to see that is a real is a real disfigurement that afflicts people on all sides of the debate um, in different ways but it's also that's a very depressing place honestly to be well let me say a few things about yeah. that because I I first tend to agree with you that persuasion is overrated in the classic marketplace of ideas we all get up in the agora and we say hey Ezra's got the right argument and boy I was wrong about that happens occasionally right? I mean, people should. That is how it should work, specifically (laughs) that. Yes, exactly. Ezra is right. Ezra is right. (laughs) Ezra is right. We all want it to work that way. And we all have agora fantasies, those of us who talk for a living, right? That we'll get up and persuade people. We can't, and we don't. Um, One of the purposes of public speech, I think, I may not even say this in the book, because I would often be asked, why do you write all these things about gun control? You're writing for the New Yorker audience. They all agree with you anyway, right? And the people who don't agree with you either don't read the New Yorker, or if they read the New Yorker, say, oh, it's the damn libs again. And what I always say is, and my favorite instance of this is, are my favorite um, uh, pieces of political writing and journalistic kind, which are Albert Camus' editorials in Combat, the combat, the uh, 
resistance newspaper, which were not only not read by the other side, were read by no one, right? Because nobody saw the paper. It was, it was uh, uh, to put it mildly, unevenly distributed. The reason we make those arguments is not because we think we're going to win the argument, but because we want to tell the people on our side what the right way is to argue. We want to provide a tone and a manner of going on, a tongue, if you like, for the people who are on our side. Say, this is the right way to make this argument, not this way. That's a very important thing because it's a form of way of coalescing. And it's very effective, too, as I'm sure you know from your own experience, right? People who agree with you say, oh, I was so, I loved reading that because I, it helped me understand. Right. Or, what, or to, to even strengthen that point a little bit more, we talk about preaching to the quiet, choir right. as if it's one thing. But right. there is convincing the choir. Yes. And, and within people who share a sense that you're all in a circle together, there actually is quite a lot of room for persuasion. Well, the choir is always about to collapse, right? You have to preach to the choir because everybody in the choir is going to go their own different way unless you preach to them. So there's a lot to be said for preaching to the choir. Yes. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is I'm not quite as skeptical as you are about the power of persuasion because I have seen so many fundamental changes in my own time, making myself sound like an oldster now, uh, that I don't think you can simply put down to identity in the sense that the people on the winning side of the argument outnumbered the people on the losing side of the argument. Let me give you the the greatest single social transformation of the most um, uh, visible one is gay marriage, right? Olivia, my daughter and I, to whom the book is dedicated, were watching the Kennedy-Nixon debates. This tells you something depressing about the entertainment options in the Gopnik family on a typical night, but we were fascinated, right? You cannot imagine, right? Not You cannot imagine Howard K. Smith turning to them and saying, Senator Kennedy, where do you stand on marriage for homosexuals? It's not only not a pertinent question, it's not a possible question. It's not an imagined question. And I remember that debate. I was very little, but I remember it. And now uh, gay marriage is on the whole an accepted uh, necessity. And if you ask, how did that happen, right? It wasn't that gay people outnumbered straight people at any point in the, in the, in the gradient, at any point along the arc. It's that the arguments which were first made uh, in isolation on the margins and seemed absurd even to many people 10 years ago, slowly began to persuade more and more people. You know, that's right. I don't actually have any reason to think that uh, men being married to men or women being married to women is in, in any sense different than heterosexuals and men and women being married. And I remember going through that process of persuasion. It's less, oh, I'm strongly against it. And I suddenly realized, oh, that's an important thing to think about. That's that's significant to think about. I think we're seeing the same thing happening today as you and I speak about reparations, right? It goes from being an unimaginable uh, platform to being, you've got a point there. You know, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. I'm, I think we all... Uh, evolve that way in, in liberal societies, uh, according to those things. So I think we are persuaded in that way. We don't simply reflect our identities in that, in that way. Um, and then beyond that, there's nothing wrong, as I say in the book, with identity politics. There's nothing wrong with saying, look, you're going to be locked in place by your ethnic background, by your allegiances, by what your father taught you, by what your mother instantiated. All of those things that are, in Chuck Taylor's sense, the where questions, where do I come from questions, right? None of us escape them. We can't possibly escape them. But what we can do is um, discover places within those identities, which as you said, but I don't think you can stress it enough, are not unitary, but are hybrid and multiple in every case. Let me, let me be specific if this sounds too abstract. Um, and forgive me if I reference my kids, but I'm writing for their generation. Uh, my son, Luke, who's uh, studying philosophy, took time off from studying philosophy to go work on the Max Rose campaign 
on Staten Island. I don't know if you were uh, following that. He campaign. won a very pro-Trump. He won area. a hugely. They had to turn forty-point deficit around. And what those kids had to learn to do was to speak a plausible language of patriotism uh, on Staten Island. Right, kids who had never been, and if you like, had never been part of their identity to talk a patriotic language, had to learn what uh, having an American flag on your porch meant had to talk about the fact that their candidate, Max Rose, was a veteran. That was the first thing they said, rather than the fourth thing they might have said if they had been campaigning in Williamsburg or someplace in Brooklyn. You can learn, you can persuade by immersion. You can persuade by understanding that somebody else's values are not unitary, but in fact are hybrid, and that there are places where you can meet with them on things like the need for the family not to go bankrupt because dad has a heart attack. Those are th those are places where politics happen. Well, so this is this is actually the push I'd make. This is a place where I'm not as pessimistic as I sometimes sound, but and so I'm actually happy to hear you phrase it this way. You have a discussion in the book in your identity politics section about essentialism and the problems of of group essentialism, which to a large extent I actually agree with. But something that that I think is true is that the essential space for persuasion, to the extent there is one, it is not reason; it's identity. So you are always the, – the place where you can move people the most is in the gap between what they believe their identities to be and how they practice them. Gay marriage is a great example. A lot of us believe ourselves to be tolerant. And then the question would be like, well, if you're tolerant, well, why not? I mean, so it took knowing and it took representation in media. But it wasn't fundamentally that somebody eventually made the case the GDP would go up. It eventually was that you weren't living your values. I mean, you talk about what Frederick Douglass understood about the persuasive space inside the Constitution, that if you if you believe you're, that you're an American, you're committed to this document, look what it actually says. And that's been, of course, a, a tremendous engine throughout uh, American history, you know, for all that we have often failed to live up to it. And that the thing that is very powerfully done, but I don't think is well understood, is you persuade to what people believe about themselves. You don't just persuade to what they don't. And the a thing that I think is often foiled um, liberals, particularly about Donald Trump, but, but but about others too, is that in the sometimes essential rootlessness of liberalism, in the idea that anything can be reconstructed from like its atomic qualities, right? In the in the fact that liberals psychologically are highly open to experience and like change quite a bit, there can be a tendency to dismiss how deeply rooted people actually are, even today, and so an inability to talk to it. And a feeling that one shouldn't even have to. Um, that if you just like, if you have the chart, like that should be the end of the argument. <laughs> well, and that's a real, I think, mistake. As, I, I couldn't agree more that it's a mistake. As you know, I think it's a, it's also sort of a caricature of the of lived liberalism, of living liberalism. It's why I go to uh, great lengths in the book to talk about uh, human beings and how human beings have struggled with it, uh, with that reality. But you're saying, I think, in more universalist terms, what I was trying to say about um, the Max Rose campaign, mm -hmm. that those kids who were working for Max Rose had to learn to talk a plausible language of patriotism. They had to respect the symbolism of the flag on the front porch. They had to respect the enormous reverence for military service that's part of the identity of so many working class Americans. And you couldn't not persuade them away from it, but exactly insert within their identity, help them recognize that part of their identity was to be in favor of the kinds of social programs that work for them and, and benefit them. I don't mean to put too rosy a face on this, Ezra. You know, I wrote a thing about uh, Reconstruction uh, not long ago, a long essay about Reconstruction. And one of the depressing realities of American political life is that we have essentially, though people don't often recognize this, been locked in place since the 1870s. You have one party 
of cosmopolitans, the educated and immigrants, essentially. And then you have another party of revanchist poor white people who are persuaded, they were persuaded in 1870 and they're persuaded now that the only function of the federal government is to transfer income from them to black people and that they would rather be impoverished and they would rather live with uh, third-rate healthcare than see any advantages transferred to their ethnic enemies. And we've been stuck in that place for a remarkably long time. We kind of move around in the in the boundaries within that those uh, those politics. And in a certain sense, Trump was the bullet in the chamber of the Russian roulette that we have been playing right along because it could have been Huey Long in the 1930s with slightly different set of circumstances. Could have been Charles Lindbergh, as Philip Roth argued, and it could have been uh, Joe McCarthy. And and it was Joe McCarthy in, at another time. So. I tend to be, as you know, a bit of a heretic on causal explanations of Trumpism. That is, it was the crisis, it was the economic crisis that caused Trumpism, or it was the failure of Hillary Clinton. Those things are true. Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate and there was an economic crisis. But that possibility, that kind of ethnic nationalism has been a feature of American life, at least since the end of the Civil War, uh, which was better than before the Civil War when it was actual... Um, slave owner ideology, and we live within it. And so I don't mean to say if we are all nice and clean and virtuous and respectful, we can therefore uh, turn people who's, who have deep hatreds and bigotries, as human beings do, uh, away the other way. The only hope lies in the historical, the successful project historically has been to say, we can move people on the margins. We can move people on the margins. And the margins are where we all live, right? The margins are the places where the difference between uh, a Democratic administration and a Republican administration in many respects are on the margins, but we live on the margins. And there's another version of that, which I think about a lot, which is progress seems unbelievably, unbearably slow. And it is. Like, that is not a false thing. And also, there could be a tremendous amount of it in 5, 10, 15 years. Um, you know, something that the Obama folks used to complain about is everybody's like, oh, the Affordable Care Act thing took so long. It took forever. Six like, months. It's 13 months. Like, <laughs> yeah. it was 13 months and, you know, 20-some million people got health care or whatever, or 15-some million people got health care. And so um, that one of the frustrating dimensions of particularly American politics, um, it's true elsewhere too, but it's really true in our institutions, is that they just move pretty slowly. And we were talking about neoliberals earlier. And I think that more often than not, what people mean when they point to you and you say, they say you're a neoliberal is they mean you're a liberal who ended up compromising with American political institutions. And one of the things I really wonder about, and, and, and I mean this quite seriously, is what would happen to um, Bernie Sanders' movement if it had to govern within American political institutions as it would if he won the election? Uh, one of the things that I, I I worry about is that if Joe Biden wins the election and, and takes out Trump, I think, you know, great. I think Donald Trump is bad. I think it'd be better to have somebody else in. Maybe very demobilizing for for a generation of people who are who are just getting involved. But on the other hand, I think Bernie Sanders would be incredibly demobilizing when if he is in office. And and this will be true for Elizabeth Warren or anywhere else or or anyone else. And all of this excitement and energy falls. Because it turns out you can't get either the 51 Democrats in the Senate to get rid of the filibuster or Mitch McConnell is still in charge of the Senate. Which is actually likelier. Which is actually likelier. And I I think this is so much to me of the divides right now, particularly the the age divides and like online 
left politics just have to do with how do you read and did you kind of like deal with, well, I wanted a really good healthcare plan, but you know, you had to get Ben Nelson on board. Right. And you had to get Ben Nelson on board. And let's not forget- Joe Lieberman. And let's not forget that the response to it, the reaction to it was such that in the most liberal state in the nation, you got a Republican senator in right. the middle of, of all that. People tend to forget that very significant fact about what happened and why it took the form it did. One of the truths, and you know, we see it here, particularly grievously, because we have an extremely inefficient and in many respects, anti-democratic democratic system. But the truth is the same thing is true in parliamentary systems, which have a much, you know, with have a unitary mm -hmm. executive. Um, when uh, Francois Mitterrand, to come back to my, my second favorite country, third favorite actually, France, took power finally as a socialist, as you may recall, um, he found exactly, the socialists in France found exactly the same set of problems that the Sanders people would find if they ever took power, which is both that, uh, that kind of change is hard, but even more significantly, it creates resistance. It creates, I mean, you don't even have to go back to Mitterrand. Look at Macron in France right now. Macron brought in what was a version essentially of the Green New Deal, right? And to his shock, it so radicalized rural France that it created the Gilets Jaunes Rebellion which is now sputtering out in large part because it never had an actual ideology, never had a set of beliefs. It was just an outrage at the unfairness of things, right? So you're going to have to cope with dissent. You're going to have to cope with resistance. It's built into it. And to come back to something we were talking about before, the easy left answer is, oh, it doesn't really exist. It's simply being cultivated by corporate media. It's simply being uh, financed by large, large corporations. That's not the case. That you, simply isn't the case that something like the the Thatcher Rebellion in England, right, against uh, the welfare state was simply a, a rich man's conspiracy. They're genuine. You see it all the time, right? And again, I have been arguing for Canadian-style national health insurance in America for the past 30 years. I believe it's the right thing to do. I haven't lived in Canada. I know that it works. I've lived in France. I've seen babies born under the French system. But when you ask people, as you know, are you in favor of Medicare for all? They say yes. They say, are you ready to have your private insurance? Will you give up your private insurance? And they say no. And that's not because they're bamboozled by uh, corporate money. It's because they've actually had good experiences with their private health insurance. Or it's because there's a particularly in healthcare, deep status quo bias. Yes. But the deep status quo bias is a human bias, right? Human beings have a status quo bias. I'm, I'm going to riff on something here that right. this is not your fault, um, but it is frustrating me in this conversation. So there's an answer to this on the left, I associate with Matt Brunig, who's a, a bright guy, uh, which is, well, look, people lose their health insurance in the private market all the time. Like a couple of years ago, Vox Media moved from Blue Cross to Cigna, and I lost my private health insurance. And there's something to that. I mean, and people do lose their health insurance. Our health insurance market is unbelievably cruel. And yet, if you cover this, this run a couple of times, people, whether or not they lose what they have, whether or not they can't control their private employers, their willingness to say, I trust the government to take it over is not there. Um, some are, for some it is. But the idea that you can kind of logic them out of that, that you can argue them out of that, it, it, it's, not, it's not true. It's why single payer, in addition to the tax issue, it keeps failing when people put it on ballots. It fails in At the state California, level too, right? in Colorado, yeah. in Vermont. That's what I'm talking right. about. Liberal and states. Liberal states. And so I, in I, my sense. I think the biggest weakness on the left right now is a unwillingness, like a like a, a an idea that 
the disagreements, the resistance isn't really there, that it is people being, to, to use your term, bamboozled, or they're just not seeing it correctly, or if it were just Bernie Sanders up there making the point and naming the names, that they wouldn't feel that. That in general, what happens when you get the politician you want up there is people move a little bit in the opposite direction. There's like a thermostatic relationship between the, the public and whoever is in power at any given moment. And it isn't that I don't agree with a lot of these things logically. I would like to move to a national health insurance system and I would take a lot of different forms of that. But the idea that, um, that people's status quo bias is something you can talk them out of, that is something that has bedeviled reformers at every single turn forever. And it's even worse if you don't really have like the, 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 the power and the votes. And I just I think that something that is going to be a deep issue in the sort of competing temperaments is really just what do you think is the reality of disagreement? How deeply rooted do you think the disagreement is to you? Um, and I, I think some folks, I mean, this happens with liberals too, can sometimes believe like they've they've got the answers on everything. But I think particularly like the left has a view that there isn't really as much disagreement out there as there actually is. And that's going to be dangerous um, or it's going to be disappointing if they get into power. It has historically been disappointing. And what the, the potentially sinister side of it is one way you deal with that disagreement on the left is simply to try and suppress the dissent, right? That's not a, a, a fantas phantasm. That's actually what happened in uh, leftist governments in the 20th century, is that you said, we should nationalize agriculture. The kulaks don't want nationalized agriculture. Let's get rid of the kulaks. That's not a logic that's unknown. Now, I understand- yes, I, I think that's Bernie not quite Sanders. a fair one to, to put into it's this It's not play. a fair, no, it's not fair, um, Ezra, in the sense that Bernie Sanders and his people are not in favor of, of liquidating the kulaks. But it's very important, I think, that just as when we look at the right, we recognize that the logic of Trumpism is is resembles the logic of fascism, right? Trust the strong man. Believe in the strong man. The strong man should be outside the accountability Maybe of the Maybe because law. I'm a liberal when you do this, it pushes me to inhabit <laughs> the democratic socialist version of myself. But, but, but let me push you on this right. in this way. I think that if I could convince people something, it would be that we are – we like all play roles in an ecosystem together. And yes, it's important that we are there together. But – the liberals need the radicals. The you, 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 There are things that the liberals with their temperament don't go far enough on, don't do. I mean, you you keep bringing up Frederick Douglass as somebody who is a great um, – uh, Simultaneously, simultaneously great as you say in the prophet, book, right. he was a radical prophet. And so I do think something here is that you need the different versions of this to be operating in coalition together. People need each other. They need the folks saying go slower and they need the folks saying go faster. And, and both those things are – are true and profound. Um, now it can get out of balance, right. and you point to times in in history that it has. Those are not careful, but I think it's careful not obscure times, right? They're not, but I think it's but I think it's important not to suggest that a habit of mind that can see things that are truly wrong, that are maybe outside the boundaries of the politically possible. I would say one of the best attacks on liberals is that the obsession with pragmatism creates a narrowing of your moral boundaries. Right, as I said before, and this is I think foundational, and maybe where we disagree. Um, I don't think that the obsession with pragmatism is well described as an obsession. I just think I would describe it as an acceptance for all the reasons we've been outlining for a moment. It's not, as I said a moment ago, that I that liberals think that incrementalism is in itself a virtue, that if we had the choice between gun control tomorrow or national health insurance tomorrow and gun control national health insurance in five years' time, we'd take five years' time because it's it's morally superior. Just the opposite. We could do it tomorrow. It would be fantastic. I think of myself as a social democrat in, in that sense, and I believe in those causes. What liberalism instantiates and understands is that we're, that's not a realistic goal. You know, you come back to the question of health care. 
Um, it's very hard to separate people from their status quo uh, prejudices, right? But uh, what can you do? You build the Affordable Care Act, which for all of its inadequacies and for all of its uh, failures, still exists despite having been the target of the mo of a radical right-wing administration for the past two years and of a radical right-wing Congress. It still exists because it serves a need. And it's on that basis that you can build towards the next thing. I have no doubt, Ezra, that in our kids' time, right, in our children's time, we'll have the equivalent. But of isn't that because of Bernie Sanders? I mean, th this would be my push on right. this. And I say this as somebody who I probably wrote more words on the affordable. I think it is right. plausible. I wrote more words about the affordable care than anyone else in the country. I think that is a plausible thing. Um, but the liberals who would just build on the Affordable Care Act, one that was like a, a popularly reasonably weak position. I mean, it, it's still possible that it will happen, but it, there's no energy behind it. We are likelier to get not, I think, full Medicare for all, but something like these Medicare for America policies. Joe Biden is producing the policy he is producing right now where everybody can buy into some kind of Medicaid-like program because Bernie Sanders stood up and said, yeah, I don't really care. I don't care that you think democratic socialism is something that is political poison. I don't care that you think if I say you're going to lose your private insurance and people are going to turn against me. And it is the people like that who move the the Overton window in politics. And then it's like the kind of liberals scurrying behind who catch up. Well, first of all, I think you overstate the degree to which it's a Sanders uh, accomplishment. I, I genuinely don't think that. Uh, I think uh, that uh, he has changed. He has changed the view that Michael Bennett has about Medicare. Right now, Michael Bennett does not support Medicare for all. But the idea that people in he may not even be exactly the right um, person to use here, but the center, like the the people in the center of the Democratic Senate caucus, are coming up with policies that are more ambitious than the people on the left side of the caucus were coming up with ten years ago, and that's because of him. There's no doubt in my mind of, the, of that. Is it because of him, or because he's effectively because of the constituencies? In other words, the people recognizing that something like the Affordable Care Act actually benefits their but lives. He's the reason they recognize. Like it is him standing up and running the campaign he ran in 2016 that made people recognize that there was that constituency. Whereas I, I, I promise you, you talk to these folks a little bit before that, and the lesson they were taking away from the unpopularity of the Affordable Care Act and, and the, the difficulties of it was not go further, go faster, go bigger. Right. Listen, as I said before, I have been arguing for yeah, yeah, I'm na not, national health insurance. I'm, I'm making a broader point since, about the, right. the ecosystem. So like, I think it's great if, if, if Bernie Sanders or whomever yeah. uh, makes that case. And there's no question that there is a permanent dialogue. And I talk about this at some length in the book between the radical prophet and the liberal politician. The, the point I would make again and again is that Radical prophecy alone and radicalism alone does not work well. Right. You always need to have liberal institutions, not as an emollient, not as a, a pragmatic instrument, but as an essential, if you like, as an essential intellectual part of that operation. Because what liberalism is very good at is saying, look, the dissent you're getting from the folks over here who don't want to give their private health insurance, that's not because they've been bamboozled by uh, big corporations because it's what their experience tells them. And you have to respect that and you have to work with it and you have to build a coalition of like-minded people that can overcome that. Let, let, me give you an, let me give you an example where I struggle with this right. in my own life. So I, I'm a vegan and I believe deeply that the billions of animals tortured in factory farming conditions and like let's just like put to the side the family farms and people are going to email me and say like my uncle, he's so nice to his cows. And, and it is true. Like if, if the whole world were like that, we, I'm not having this conversation. But most animals – who are raised for food, which is a tremendous amount, are raised in conditions that are so horrifying, there are laws to keep you from seeing it. 
And and only immigrants are brought in to mm-hmm. do the killing. And it is traumatizing right. to them. Yes. Um, there's a whole other set of literature about that. And this is a a space where it is clear that the system itself does not want to even think about it. I mean, and it is very hard on – I can tell you here that persuasion is very hard and, and doesn't – you know, quasi-work has been out that well. And this is a place where I think that if I took my own moral intuition seriously, it would push me towards a different kind of radicalism. And my temperament is, I think, more like the temperament d- described by you. And so I try to work this through persuasion and I talk about it on the show and I bring people on. I try to move like the boundaries of what is being thought about it. But this is something where I think the the place we are is unbelievably immoral. And I don't think that – I think that liberalism has some answers for me. And I'm not saying that radicalism exactly has them. But it is hard to say what to do exactly when the the scale of the wrong is outside what the system seems willing to, to deal with. Climate change is another where people make this argument. But but this is, I think, a tough space. And I think it's a space where people really do get radicalized when they see something that is so wrong that there doesn't seem to be a response that is imagine it that is imaginable within the system and proportionate to the scale of the injustice. Right. Well, a couple of things. One is um, I don't expect people to have, be, you know, n- know all my work, but I wrote about this exact issue, this moral issue in the book I did about the philosophy of eating, uh, The Table Comes First, about the ethics of veganism. And I've always thought and have often said that the factory farm and mass slaughter of animals will seem to our descendants almost as abhorrent as our practices of slavery or the oppression of women or the mutilation of women seem to us now. Mm-hmm. That it's one of the big lessons of life is, is that we have to, we know for certain that our descendants will find something that we accept to be utterly morally abhorrent. And I suspect that that's the thing that it will be. It will be, they will read. And then he ate a veal chop with the same horror that we read about Thomas right, Jefferson. The, the meat will be made from like right. cells and plants. They and will so have it, it becomes very easy to look back and say, oh my God. They like we feel, live in this yes. punctuated period of technology creating mass industrial slaughter, but before technology has really created the answer. L- let's hope that let's hope yes. that that's the case. So I completely agree with you about the ethics ethics of that as about climate change, right? All right. So, but let's ask ourselves, so what kind of activism is going to be successful there? Already we've seen enormous changes, right? You know, that uh Veganism is epidemic in your generation and will continue to be so, be epidemic in the next generation too. What we know, and that's the way social change begins, right, is that the more people who don't want to eat factory farm meat, uh, the less of it there's going to be. That's one of the ways in which in which social change happens. If the existence and the persistence of a factory farm is morally abhorrent to you in that way, then I suspect you would be willing to take the risk of civil disobedience and go chain yourself to a fence in front of a slaughterhouse and accept the consequences. And through that, like the suffragettes chaining themselves Mm -hmm. to the uh, houses of parliament, we would all have our consciousness raised and we'd have to ask ourselves, this is part of the liberal tradition, am I ignoring something that's ethically and morally essential? And there are people with great bravery, like direct action everywhere who are doing this. Right. That's different than than the Unabomber, right? That's different from saying I'm going. I know I have the moral monopoly on this. Therefore, I'm going to go like John Brown or the Unabomber and blow up the the factory farm or the factory slaughterhouse. And if a few people get killed, I regret it. But the wrong is in itself so vast that I can justify that to my conscience. Those are two very different ways of proceeding in the world. Coming back to Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass faced that challenge in a very direct way and said, I'll chain myself to the fence and I will do everything I can to work uh, through a constitutional system, including the, the potentiality of uh, 
constitutional war, but I won't follow the path of terrorism. I won't follow the John Brown path. That's a, an ethical choice that I think people make. I have enormous respect for the gravity of the ethical situation you're describing. As I said, I think it's probably the likeliest to approach. But we have experience and we have history about, uh, about how that happens. I think that you should go chain yourself to that fence, Ezra. I, I mean, I, I, I think that that's, um, that's right. Look, we all ask ourselves that question. How can we not, you know, when we're having this conversation, Ezra, which I'm enjoying totally, there's a little part in the back of my mind that reminds me, uh, and it's something, you know, I've been out on the road preaching for this book, that we divorce ourselves from the scale of the emergency we're living through right now. You know, we have in Donald Trump, someone who says openly that he would take the help of a foreign government uh, if it helped subvert the uh, American constitution. Yeah. We have uh, uh, his, a display of absolute contempt, not just by Trump, but by the entire conservative party in a way that I will frankly admit I was predicted, but still find shocking for the basic, not the norms, you know, we use that language norms all the time, right? Those aren't the norms of democracy in the sense that they're uh, the polite mannerisms of democracy is the premises of democracy, right? That you don't take money from a foreign power to subvert the system, that you accept the rules and you and you agree to play by the rules even when you think the rules are unfair to you. Uh, that you accept that uh, uh, justice has to proceed independent of your own will and power. And we're seeing those violated, raped, day after day after day. Uh, and so you ask yourself the question to come back to the point, at what, what's the breaking point for me, right? At what point do I take to the streets? At what point do I say, we all have to converge on Washington and shut down the government because we can't simply tolerate uh, the slow erosion of the fundamental principles of liberal democracy. We've seen that it happens. We've seen it shut down in Turkey. We've seen it shut down in, in Hungary. And we know that it can happen. What's that moment? I don't know what that moment is. But I know that I often worry that uh, in talking around those kinds of urgencies, that we cannot be paying sufficient attention to the scale of the emergency we're, we're living within. I believe still, as I explain in the book, that the best solution to these things is to reinforce liberal institutions with as broad a coalition of supporters as you can possibly find. That's one reason why I find the you know the few remaining anti-Trump conservatives to be sympathetic figures, and I believe that that instead of having the attitude, well, you made this bed, and now you're surprised to be lying in it, you have to have the attitude, no, no, we, those people are essential to the the coalition of like kinds. I'll make one. I'll offer one thought on this because it's something that I think I struggle with within the journalistic context. Right? Should every podcast I do, should every piece I write, be a different version of? Did you fucking hear yes. what he just said? <laughs> exactly. And something that I've come to believe pretty deeply is that there are genuine horrifying things that he is doing, right? Family separations at the border is being, being an example that is actually happening. Then there's the kind of daily bid he makes for our attention, the daily bid he makes to control what we think about through outrage, to reinforce his own division in politics by deciding what we are going to say. And I have come to believe, not that those things shouldn't be covered, of course, they should be. Um, you know, Donald Trump going on and saying he would accept a foreign uh, adversary's help in the election is a, is a notable thing that has happened. But I actually think it's pretty important not to get into his vision of politics and to ensure some kind of mindfulness over your own attention as actually an important part of 
what ends up resisting him. If Donald Trump is able to make politics just look like him, if he's able to choose a split we have and the debates we have and the divides we have, I don't exactly want to say he will win because he's a, in many ways a quite bad politician, but he's a hell of a lot likelier to win. I think that one of the hardest things to do, um, and I think that if a Democrat is going to be as successful as they hope and can be in 2020, they're going to have to do it. And I've heard a lot of them talking about this and thinking about it explicitly, is there's going to be a part of the campaign that is all about Trump and there's going to be a part that is not. There's a part of politics that is all about Trump and there's a part that is not. Well, um, And I think it's really... It's only to say that I, I always want to give people more license than I think they feel they have to not just be glued to Twitter getting pissed off. Um, there's a lot of like work to be done in your community. Un, un, <laughs> unplugged. Two things. One, practical and, and immediate, and the other, I hope, a, a little deeper. Practical and immediate thing is I got to hear uh, Mayor Pete talk uh, not too long ago, and he takes exactly the position you're talking about, yeah. that every time you pay attention, every time you react to a crazy tweet, Trump is winning, that if he defines the world as a you know a wrestling match, as a professional wrestling match, and all we're saying is, get in the ring with him, kick him, break a chair over his head, he's winning because he's defined that reality. And that's the only, someone asked him, what would you, what would you do in the debates? And he said, you know, every night at 3 a.m., I think about the things I would say in a debate, at least I'm loyal to my spouse and so on. And then every day I have to discipline myself. That's playing his game. That's getting engaged at his level. And I think historically, it's also been true that the way you defeat populist autocrats is not by, with another populist autocrat, but by saying, look, they don't make the trains run on time. They don't make keep the sewers clean and so on. So I think that that at a practical level about Trump is probably true. Um, at a deeper level, coming to your question, wh you know, why don't you do every podcast saying, did you just see what the fuck he said? You know, I have that issue too. I've had it since 2016. It's why I wrote this book saying, just wrote a long essay about aphorisms, the history of aphorisms for The New Yorker. And there's a little part of me that says, why the fuck are you writing about aphorisms? Your descendants will go, go on saying, you know, they were playing um, uh, uh, pretty melodies, right? While the, while the entire beautiful ship was sinking. And the answer to that, and I thought about it a lot, right? Because I thought about it immediately after the election. Uh, how do you go on writing about G.K. Chesterton or about, uh, or, uh, a thousand things you choose to write about. And the answer, and I think it's an important one, is that values come from places other than politics. And values have to be, can be affirmed outside the, the bonds of politics. One of the worst things that bad politics do to us is make us pay attention to politics. You know, I say in this book that one of the reasons that liberals like law is not because they're obsessed with everything being law-like, but because they recognize the huge part of human existence that isn't law-like, that can't be encompassed by laws and say, when we have the right laws, the laws that prevent my neighbor from stabbing me in the back or prevent me from being uh, pogromed, if that's a verb, because I'm a Jew, then I can pay attention to the stuff in life that really matters. And it seems to me that in every moment of uh, real misery, not our version of it, which is still quite, uh, quite tolerable in many ways, but of real human oppression and persecution, what you find is not that people are you know, in the French resistance are not single-mindedly devoted to political causes, but they're devoted to publishing literature and publishing poetry and being sure that the genuine life of the mind and of civilization, which is not narrowly circumscribed by politics, persists. I think that is a good place to come to a close. So here is the question I always ask right. at the end of the podcast. What are three books that have influenced you? I feel like this is actually going to be a hard question for you. What are three books that have influenced you I, that you would recommend to others? In in composing this book or in general? In, in you, can, you can interpret it however you would like. 
three books that have affected me most profoundly. I always say this, and people are always a bit um, puzzled by it, but um, James Boswell's Life of Johnson is my favorite book. It's been my bedside reading since I was a teenager. And it's a wonderful book because it for two particular reasons. One, because Samuel Johnson, its hero and its subject, is a great Christian conservative, and those of us who are liberal secularists need to be in the company of someone that, unlike ourselves, is a wholly admirable human being at the same time. That's salutary. And the other thing it reminds us of is that Boswell was roundly attacked and lacerated in his own time for not making the distinction between significant high subjects and the narrow personal subjects of the way people talked and the way they scratched and the way they ate oranges. People said, how can you write so much about how Dr. Johnson ate an orange? That's disgusting. But of course, the orange eating persists into our own time. And it's a reminder for all of us who are writers that there is no subject too minute for a creature as minute as mankind. That's my first book. Second book um, is um, Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies. If there's a foundational book, even more in some ways than John Stuart Mill for my own, for this book of my own on liberalism, it's Popper's uh, great book on the on Plato and on Marx. Still the best thing ever written about Marx. Uh, still the best thing I think ever written about Plato. And if you want a profound defense of uh, the values of liberalism from someone who at the time was a social democrat and an exile, living in exile in New Zealand, uh, that would be the one I'd, I would uh, turn to. And finally, um, I always come back and I urge on everyone um, the uh, the writings of Randall Jarrell. Uh, he's my favorite critic. He's a, a How wonderful writer. How do you spell writer. his last name? J-A-R-R-E-L-L. And it's a reminder, and obviously this is somewhat self-serving, but I think um, I'm allowed to serve myself a little bit in my favorite books, at least, uh, that um, the best criticism is written not from an ideological point of view and certainly not from an academic point of view, but from what I call a cabaret point of view. The first impulse in criticism should be to delight and entertain, and the second one to um, educate and inculcate. Adam Gopnik, thank you very much. Pleasure being here. All right. Thank you to Adam Gopnik for being here. There, It's funny. This is one of those ones where I walked away and I had like ideas for 20 more questions when I left. Uh, and so maybe we'll have to do a round two or, or, or talk to other people in this space. I also want to explore neoliberalism a little bit more on the show because I think there's something more interesting in that whole debate than, than has really been given credit for. But I appreciate Adam being here today. Um, I appreciate our producer, Jeffrey Geld. I appreciate all of you fine people who make doing this show such a pleasure. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Mm-hmm.